Hi everyone and welcome to the Learner's Corner. My name is Caleb Mason and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I'm honored to be joined by Carmen Imes to talk with her about her brand new book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. Now here on the Learner's Corner, what we want to do is... Uh, create a place to where we can have conversations about anything that just help us continue to learn and grow and sometimes even engage in some of the conversations that maybe maybe that are just difficult to have or we we don't really have a place to to have those types of conversations and what got me interested in this book is a lot found in the title and the subtitle and it's really exploring more of what it means to be God in God's image and treating people in God's image that's just a it's an idea that just really fascinates me and that I just want to continue to learn more about and just how that's tied to creation as well as being good stewards of of creation as well which are just two things that I'm very interested in learning about or learning more about but wherever you are whether you're on the been on the journey of lifelong learning for a long time or a little time we want to journey with you and just help you on your path to lifelong learning and one of the ways that i do that is through my Substack, through just giving different recommendations of some of the things that i'm learning from some of the things that are engaging my imagination my my attention as well from serious things from uh books well i mean there's also non-serious books in there, but fiction, non-fiction, stories, YouTube videos, songs, music, videos, really just the whole uh, gamut of stuff, really just the things that are, that I'm really just enjoying and some of my best recommendations as well. And so that email comes out one time a week. And again, you can just go uh, either onto Substack or you can check out the show notes and my Substack will be there and you can subscribe to that as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Carmen, and then we will jump right into our conversation. So Carmen Imes is the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University, and she is the author of Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, and the editor of Praying the Psalms with Augustine and Friends. Really looking forward to this conversation. Without any further ado, here we go. Well, Carmen, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, you know, one of one of my favorite places to begin conversations, especially with people who have created uh, works of art, in your case, you know, being God's images, I love hearing the origin story for mm. things. And so I would just love to hear kind of your origin story of what got you interested or what, what began this journey to writing this book you. Sure. Yeah, there's several ways I could tell that story. The idea first grabbed me back in 2009. I was attending an academic conference, the Evangelical Theological Society meetings. I heard a plenary address by John Kilner, in which he very persuasively argued that nobody has lost the image of God, that every human being is the image of God and that you couldn't lose it. And I had heard so many people over the years talk about the image of God being lost or distorted or diminished in some way. So that really uh, caught my attention. And I just tucked that away. Uh, he is an ethicist and he argued that if we get this wrong, it has tremendous con consequences for ethics. Hmm. That if we don't believe that every other human being is the image of God, then we may not treat them with the dignity that they deserve. If we if we look at them as somebody who's less than human or less than the Imago Dei. And so I just talked that away. And years later, my first book with IVP had come out, uh, Bearing God's Name. And I was thinking about what do I want to write next? And a podcast interview host asked me a question, what's an idea that needs to die? Mm -hmm. And I what came to my mind right away was the way that we share the gospel in a kind of disembodied way that we ask Jesus into our hearts so that we can go to heaven when we die. And I just felt like 
by that point, I had been captured by this bigger biblical vision of creation and human embodiment and new creation. And I was convinced that our gospel story needs to include that, that, mm. that sense of embodiment, the reality that we've been made as God's image and that creation matters, that our participation in it matters. It's not just a temporary, uh, temporary zone that our bodies are not just temporary shells that are going to be discarded. And so I said that on the podcast and then I got to thinking, you know, there could be another book here, mm. um, tracing this idea of being God's image and it's in all its physicality, physicalness through scripture into the new creation. And so that's, that's how the book was born. Mm. Yeah. What, what cultivated that idea in you? Of, of the, of the wider biblical theme yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I took a class. I was actually just working on designing a biblical theology class to teach here at Biola, where I'm professor of Old Testament. And I pulled out my notes from college where I took an Old Testament biblical theology class with Ray Lubeck. And it was a life-changing class because he kept showing us all of these threads and themes that tied the whole biblical story together. Mm. And so I think that's where it really first grabbed my attention, that the Bible is a unified story, to put it like Tim Mackey does, that leads to Jesus. Yeah. Tim Mackey was in that class with me. Uh, we were experiencing it and discovering together the Bible as a unified story and seeing the the infinite complexity of the way these themes intertwine and play out across the canon. And so now I'm just thinking about how can I recapture this for my students? How can I recreate the experience that I had and have them come away just in awe of scripture and what a remarkable book it is. It's a, it's a book that humans wrote, but it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I want to move on to talking about the book, but I, man, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you because that's such a great question that that podcast host asked you. Yeah. Like, what's an idea that needs to die? I'd lo just love to hear what's, what's like another one that comes to mind. That's just <laughs> an idea that die. needs to die for you. Uh, well, this will, this will bridge a conversation into the book that yeah. I've written now. Um, I am really, I'm really grieved by the way the history of the church has, codified and reinforced in so many different ways a hierarchy between humans particularly a gender hierarchy and i my study of the image of god convinced me that men and women are the image of god from the very beginning and we so often talk about gender as as a hierarchy um, that men were made to rule over women. And I'm just really struck by Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when God appoints humans as his image, he appoints us, plural, to rule over creation. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the church has gotten hung up on Genesis 3, where there very clearly is a hierarchy that results from the fall. But I don't understand why we've made that our, the central way that we think about gender relations. And when I say we, I mean my conservative evangelical tribe that I'm part mm -hmm. of. Obviously, not everyone in the world has bought into that. But I think that's an idea that needs to die and that we need to recover the, the beginning of the gospel story, which is creation is good. Humanity is very good. Men and women are the image of God. And we've been given this duty, this responsibility to rule over creation. And that tells me we need to learn how to do this side by side in a way that truly is collaborative. Mm -hmm. Where do you think, like, is it just sin that led to that idea or like any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear in Genesis one that God created humans to rule over creation. The glaring absence is any command to rule over each other. Mm -hmm. You don't get any command to rule over each other until chapter three. Um, and even there, it's not a command, it's a consequence. And so I would say sin, uh, sin in its all its insidious forms, in, uh, instead of receiving the position and the dignity that God has given to each one of us and learning how to work well together, we operate, I think, with a sense of inferiority or having to prove ourselves. And so we are continually jostling for top position. 
So I'm not one of those women who wants to, um, you know, down with men and women should rule the world. I, I truly believe that God's design is for us to work together side by yeah. side and that men should work together side by side. Uh, obviously, there's there's angst around the hierarchy between men and women, but there are lots of hierarchies in the world between men and between women no. that I don't think are healthy. I think we are supposed to treat one another as we are, as the image of God, and and sin distorts that in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I absolutely love the subtitle of your book, Why Creation Still Matters. And I do want you to elaborate that in, mm-hmm. in just a second, because, you know, I think you hit at something, even, even just as I was preparing for our conversation. Mm-hmm. Creation, like I've just noticing like creation is something that just gets overlooked like we take yeah. it for granted it's it's just like a given assumption especially um i guess like in particular like christians if there's somebody who should be taking creation seriously it should be yes. followers of jesus absolutely um, so yeah. so talk maybe, maybe talk to me about why we don't take it seriously <laughs> i caleb i had a section in the book that i deleted because <laughs> there were there were a number of sections in the book i deleted but one of them was trying to 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 account for the reasons why conservative evangelicals are not leading the way in creation care and mm-hmm. i don't i don't feel qualified to assess it which is why i deleted that section but i have my suspicions yeah and my suspicion is that the two party political system in the united states has sort of driven a wedge and that Um, the very real and um, necessary focus on abortion, like on um, the abortion issue has then polarized voters so that creation care has now been associated with the Democratic Party and, and conservative Christianity has been associated with the Republican Party. And it's, it just feels so unnecessary when I've, I've lived in a couple of other countries now, the Philippines and Canada, and it's striking to me how the same division isn't true in those contexts. Um, But I think that conservative Christians have rightly had a concern for how people are being treated and how um, a concern for people hearing the gospel so that their souls can be saved. But I think we've neglected the embodied part of that. And it's mm-hmm. co- the reasons for that are complex. I've already suggested some political reasons, the sort of us versus them that results from the two-party system. Uh, that And that, that doesn't happen in Canada in the same way because there's like yeah. five or more parties and it, it's much more complex. But yeah. I think theologically it happens because of the very widespread acceptance of dispensational theology and the idea of a rapture that's going to get us out of here. And if we are going to be beamed up to heaven and this whole planet's going to burn, then why pick up trash and why think about sustainability and why not use all the fossil fuels we can (laughs) while we have it? So I think it's complicated, but I've been trying to figure out why my, why the culture, the subculture I was part of growing up didn't care about the earth. We made fun of people actually who cared about spotted owls and uh, who were trying to reduce carbon emissions. We thought that they were tree huggers and that they, they were missing the whole point. And now I'm reading scripture with new eyes and saying, huh, when God makes humans, the very first thing he tells us is that we should be caring for creation, that we should provide for its flourishing. So it doesn't seem like that's coming from atheist environmentalists. Mm-hmm. And and certainly there are forms of environmentalism that that cross the line into earth worship. And I don't think we should be there. But I do think that the very first responsibility humans are given is to care for creation, which means it's part of who God made us to be. So it's not unfaithful for Christians to care about and invest in sustainable practices or earth, earth keeping practices. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about why creation still does matter and that Mm. it it isn't the case. Like we do have a responsibility as followers of Jesus uh, to steward creation. 
Yeah, if we trace uh, this theme of humanity and the earth into the New Testament, and we just plop ourselves down in the Gospels, we find that God God comes in the flesh, in a, in a human body, as a human on earth. If creation didn't matter anymore, if it was a temporary experiment, it failed, God's up to something different now, then Jesus certainly didn't need to come in a human body or as a human um, but not only did he come as a human, but he rose bodily from the dead and he ascended as a human into the heavenly realm so that there's now a human who's a member of the Trinity permanently. Um, and the New Testament then tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, without any apology, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, that his physical resurrection is not a one-time thing, it's not a unique experience, but that every one of us is going to be physically raised to life. And so that would have been the perfect time for Paul to say, okay, so Jesus, Jesus rose again, but don't misunderstand, like all this is going to burn, you're going to burn, your bodies are going to escape this husk of a shell that of flesh that you have, and you'll be free, finally free to float around uh, unhindered by the trappings of arms and legs. That's not what Paul says. He says we're going to be raised to new life uh, in our bodies. And so I think the New Testament is clear that the, the direction we're headed is an embodied future in the new creation. I take new creation in the sense of renewed creation, not that this planet is going to burn to a crisp and God's going to start over, but that the fire the New Testament talks about is a purifying fire that's going to get rid of everything that doesn't belong in in the, that gets rid of everything that doesn't belong in, in God's new creation. All of the things mm -hmm. that would be uh, maybe painful reminders of human oppression or exploitation or degradation of some kind, those things will be gone. And what will be left is the beautiful world God intended from the beginning, filled with human diversity and cultures and languages that uh, we've gotten to participate in building mm -hmm. uh, in, in these intervening years. Yeah. You know, I, I'd love for you to kind of tease out what what is our our role with creation because as as you mentioned mm. you know they're on the spectrum there's you know you completely ignore it and then you know you deify it you and somewhere it. In, yeah yeah you worship it and and somewhere in the middle is our responsibility as followers of jesus yeah. can you kind of tease out what that responsibility is meant to look like sure so i think we have a clue in genesis chapter one when god provides he says um male and female, he created them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we have this mandate to rule and to multiply. Um, that's a consequence or, a, or an implication of our status or identity as God's image. But what's interesting to me is what comes immediately after that, verses 29 and 30, of Genesis 1, is where God gives plants for us to eat. And then he specifies that he's also given plants to the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. In other words, we have the same food source as the animals that we are told, told to rule over, which then should shape the way we think about what it means to steward creation. It's not take whatever we want for ourselves and amass it for ourselves, but we have to somehow learn to live in coexistence with God's animal kingdom and and share. We, we have to learn to share resources. Uh, and so it begins to matter that we think about um, greenways in our, in our urban centers and and paths where animals can continue to migrate and access to the kind of food that they need. Um, in our changing world, in our urbanizing world, these are things we need to think about. And I think some countries and some states and some counties are thinking really well about these things, and others have a long ways to go. Because mm -hmm. we've been used to just thinking about the world as unlimited resources for my enrichment rather than I'm a steward over resources that I have to share with other humans and with animals. They're not just all for the taking. Mm -hmm. Is there a, like a, 
a good or positive example that you think of of either like a country or an organization or someone that someone that is doing that? Yeah, you know, I was just in British Columbia in Canada, and I was struck by how hard it was to find plastic. There are no plastic bags uh, being used in stores and restaurants. Uh, no straws. There are um, it, when you go to the airport, they're using like instead of, you know, you buy a salad to go, it's in a compostable container mm -hmm. in, instead of in all plastic. And even the utensils that you get are compostable. And I thought, what? There's plastic utensils that are compostable? Why aren't we using these everywhere? Uh, we're just leaving the generations that follow us a massive environmental mess with how many single-use plastics we use. So that's one example. Another example, we lived in Alberta, Canada for four years, and we were not too far from Banff National Park. They have developed um, overpasses over the freeway for animals so that they can migrate. And it's, it's not a perfect system because some of the predator animals have figured out they can just camp out on either <laughs> ends of the bridge and, and find their deer or whatever. Um, but they've, but these overpasses are covered with trees so that, so that an animal can safely cross from one side to the other without getting hit by a car. They're expensive to build, but I think it's important to recognize that the, the wilderness isn't just there for us and our convenience. And I think what we've learned from generations of mismanagement is that when we don't think about the uh, well-being of the animal kingdom or plant kingdom, we end up reaping consequences. Humans end up reaping consequences. And one one book that's really helpful, I touch on it a little bit in mine, but I point readers to Sandra Richter's book, Stewards of Eden, where she takes a deep dive into what the scriptures say about environmental care and stewardship. And she uses lots of examples, things like uh, mass farming you know, chicken farms and beef farms and animal treatment there and strip mining operations. And and one of the things she points out is the direct impact on human populations of that kind of mismanagement. So hmm. you, you don't see a strip mining operation right next to a high class neighborhood, but often they the consequences of strip mining are felt downstream in poorer communities whose drinking water is is compromised or whose um, land is now unstable. There's chemicals that are now being dumped into the environment that they are raising their children in and it's no longer safe to live there. And they don't have a collective voice that's being heard by the um, business tycoons who own these very lucrative operations. And so it's this is not just a matter of caring about the planet. It's about caring for the people who live here and who are disproportionately affected by human greed. Mm -hmm. I got to say, that's one of the one of the things I appreciate the most about your book is how mm -hmm. you format it in that if you if you get intrigued by a topic that you write about, you mm. provide so many other resources. I, mm. I absolutely love that so Good. much of just, it facilitates, you know, just the learning and, and just following our curiosity for what intrigues yes. us. This book is not the final word on anything. I yeah. cover so many different topics um, that all relate to our human identity and vocation. And I am trying to be a bridge between readers and lots of really high quality um works of biblical theology that that people can access i feel like sometimes people in the pews are like i want to learn but i don't mm -hmm. know where to start and i'm surrounded by the riches of really quality resources yeah. um, if you're watching the video of our conversation you see lots and lots of books behind me books are my life and i know tons of people who are um, just solid evangelical scholars who are doing such good work that is worth reading. Not, am I allowed to say this? Not all evangelical scholarship is worth reading. Uh, not all scholarship at large is worth reading. So what I've tried to do is is collate uh, or collect 
mm-hmm. all the things that I think have been most helpful to me and that I think will be most helpful to others so that you can use my book as kind of the starting point of digging into so many different areas, disability theology, racism, mm-hmm. uh, gender relations, creation care, the rapture, um, suffering, finding life in your work, finding meaning in your work. Um, so many different topics that get touched on by this yep. theme. Yeah, and that, that's really the goal of this podcast too, of just connect people to things because yes. of just what you were saying, like it just for so many, so many reasons, it's just harder to know who to trust and who to listen to. It is so on, hard. On so Our world things. has a cacophony of voices. And if you're not a specialist, say in Old Testament, somebody could be on YouTube saying stuff about the Old Testament that sound, I mean, yeah. sounds pretty persuasive to me. Um, but you might not know that they're mis they're misusing Hebrew or they're misreading it in some way. And so it is really helpful, I think, to have experts who can point to other experts who are not just um, setting up shop in their garage and saying nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, one, one of the quotes that you have that I would love for uh, you to elaborate on, which ties back into um what we've been talking about is that you say being God's image involves kinship and Mm. kingship. Can you kind of tease out what both of those roles look like? Sure. Um, The, the idea of kinship I discovered by reading Catherine McDowell's dissertation. That was the other part of my uh, process is I read a number of dissertation. I didn't write my dissertation on, on the image of God, I wrote it on uh, the Ten Commandments. So this was delving into new territory for me. But I went and read five or more dissertations of those who did really good work on this issue, so that I could distill it and and take the best parts of it and express it in a way that a non-specialist can access it. So that was my hope. So Catherine McDowell, who has a very technical Harvard dissertation on the image of God, um, pointed out that in Genesis five. We have this little scene where it says, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And it goes on with a longer genealogy. But what's fascinating about that is it's setting up an analogy. Seth the son of Adam is Adam's image and likeness in a similar way that we are God's image and likeness. It's a way of helping define what God means when he says we're his image. It's a it's an indicating a family connection. We're part of God's royal family. We already talked a bit about the rulership aspect of it, the kingship. That comes in Genesis 1 with the command to rule over creation. And so we are part of God's royal family, which means we take up this responsibility of ruling in a sort of representative role on his behalf. And that is fascinating because I think not every human feels like they're connected to God naturally or feels like they're royalty, but mm-hmm. but all of us are, and we have this um divinely given responsibility so even if no one around you recognizes your dignity and worth the god of the universe has already given you his stamp of approval and said here's the job i want you to do and so there's a there's a sense of i think real freedom in in understanding that god says who we are um Mm -hmm. and and imbues us with dignity Mm -hmm. you know just as uh, you were doing all the research and, you know, kind of on your own journey of learning for this book. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear what was like, what was like a, 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 persec- or a perspective shifter for you or what's something that really surprised mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. One of the big surprises for me was what I learned about disability. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think growing up in the church, I assumed that the reason there are disabilities in our world is because of the fall and these are broken things and God's going to fix everybody. And so when we get to heaven, there will be no wheelchairs and there will be no learning disabilities and there will be, everybody will be able-bodied. And um, this is maybe one of the more controversial suggestions that I make in the book, but I toy with the possibility that maybe 
maybe we won't all be able-bodied in the new creation. And listeners are very free to disagree with me on this because I'm just speculating. But as we look at the risen Christ, he still has scars that indicate the pain that he experienced in his earthly body before his death. And so that tells me there's continuity in our bodies before and after our resurrection. And that our resurrected bodies will be recognizable. And so I'm I'm not at all sure that um, everybody's going to just still have every disability, but I wonder, mm-hmm. um, I wonder about it. And what I'm interrogating about my own assumptions that I've had is that I think I've assumed that to be able-bodied is the ideal. And as I read more about disability, and even read more of scripture and what scripture says about disability, I realized I had maybe oversimplified it. Um, I'm writing a commentary on Exodus right now. And in Exodus chapter four, Moses is complaining that he doesn't want God to send him to Egypt to confront Pharaoh because he has a speech impediment. He says, I'm slow of speech and tongue, which uh, the phrase used there, I'm persuaded uh, is an actual medical diagnosis. It shows up in in uh, the cousin language of Akkadian in a, in a medical text of medical disabilities. And God says to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God could have snapped his fingers and healed Moses of his speech impediment right there, but he implies that he made Moses that way on purpose and that perhaps the ideal is not to be healed, but to be um, to be brought into a community where all the needs are met. So God provides Aaron to go alongside Moses and speak on his behalf. And that appears to have been God's plan all along, because when Moses continues to complain and says, just please send someone else, God says, what about Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, which tells me that God's plan from the beginning was to have Aaron come alongside Moses, and together they were going to do this task. And the reason God gets angry at Moses in this passage is because Moses is failing to trust that God will provide what he needs. Hmm. So I, I've i just, um, that's really challenged the way that I think about disability. Mm-hmm. Um and I, as I look, as I've re-examined some of the healing stories in the New Testament, it struck me that Jesus is not, uh, he, he's, he often doesn't seem to be interested in fixing someone. It, the, the reason for the healing seems to be something other than fixing someone and seems mm-hmm. m- more to relate to revealing his true identity. So again, I'm not 100% sure about this, but as I read even uh, testimonies of people with disabilities, many were saying, I don't know who I would be without this disability. Uh, I have students who have expressed this to me. Mm-hmm. Without my disability, I don't know what I have to offer the, the community. I am uniquely who I am because of this disability. So for sure, the scriptures say there will be no more crying, no more pain, mm-hmm. no more sorrow in the new creation. So there will be no angst related to our bodily condition. But I wonder if if we'll still have some of the same limitations, but we will have learned to work well together. Mm-hmm. And so they won't those those limitations won't be experienced as disabilities or as barriers because we will love each other so well that we can do whatever needs to be done. Yeah. I I love that. And I, I really just appreciate it because I think it underscores uh, just that we don't know what God is thinking in terms of stuff. We don't know right. what we don't know what true healing is going to look like. Right. We don't know what even the new creation is going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's so deeply ingrained in Western culture that the ideal human is able-bodied and self-sufficient. And that's that idolatry of self-sufficiency, I think is so deeply ingrained that it's hard for us to imagine it ever being good to need someone. And yet when God makes Adam, he says it's not good Mm -hmm. for man to be alone. Mm -hmm. That That there is a sense of collaboration 
that is necessary and is built in from the beginning. The first thing about creation that was not good was being alone. So why do we think self-sufficiency is the ideal? It mm -hmm. seems like partnership is what God had in mind from the beginning. Yeah. As you were talking about it, it made me think of, um, it's, I have the quote here and I can't remember if it's a story, but it's definitely a quote. Um, if you have this quote from, uh, what a friend of Wesley Hills said to him, yeah, who is a, yeah. a gay man who has chosen celibacy. And the mm -hmm. friend said that living with unfilled desires is not the exception of the human experience, but the rule. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's an example of where somebody who experiences persistent, lifelong same-sex attraction um, has something really valuable to offer the rest of us mm -hmm. because Wesley Hill's um, persistence in discipleship and in following Jesus, surrendering those unfulfilled desires to the Lord then becomes a model for all of us to resist the desires that we have when they don't align with God's uh, intentions for us. And so we, we'd love to just wave our magic wand and have no struggles, but the struggles themselves actually form Christ in us. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that not just with gender and sexual diversity, but say neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. um, those who find themselves on the spectrum of autism have so much to offer us. Um, and not to re I, even saying that I want to just say, I'm not, I don't want to reduce the value of humans to what we can produce, mm -hmm. but there's a perspective that is added to a community by someone who sees the world differently, experiences the world differently, experiences sounds and colors and tastes differently and textures and we, the world is so beautifully diverse and we have so much to learn from each other. And I don't think that the new creation will have successfully smashed us all into the cookie cutter so that we're all exactly the same. We'll all be 33 years old and able-bodied and the same skin tone. And like, I just, I just am convinced that that diversity is part of God's wild creativity that he wants us to learn to embrace. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you, you mentioned earlier that there was uh, just some, some parts of the book that either just because of space or whatever that you weren't able to include. I would just be curious to hear what's, what's one of those things that made like the, uh, that didn't make it into the book that you're like really excited about or you wish that you could include or, or whatever. Um, okay. Excited about there were, there were things I was nervous about, hate mail, and so I cut them. <laughs> <laughs> I did tell a story that I really I really liked the story, but we decided there were – I tell a lot of stories in the book, and we had enough stories that were kind of doing the same thing, so mm -hmm. I, I cut it. Um, a number of years ago, maybe five years ago now, four years ago, I was at a conference in San Diego. I It was an academic – meeting i was with professors deans presidents provosts all week long um in having meetings about curriculum design and latest research and all of this stuff you know so all of the all of the accolades that come in the academy were being thrown around and it was time for me to leave i was going to take a uh, an Amtrak train to Los Angeles, come and speak at Biola. This is before I worked here. I was coming to speak in chapel and then I was going to fly home to Canada. And at, as I walked into the Amtrak station, I made eye contact with a man um, and he smiled at me and I smiled back and I was eating an apple and I went and sat down. And after a minute, he came and sat by me and asked me, that's not all you have to eat, is it? Uh, that doesn't look like much of a dinner. And I said, oh, well, I'll eat when I, you know, get to the hotel in Los Angeles. I'm just, just tidying myself over. And we, we got into a conversation and it was 45 minutes long. Cause that's how long I had to wait for my train. And this man was so engaged. It was the most life giving conversation that I was involved in the entire week hmm. in terms of just feeling seen and heard and loved and, 
And we talked about scripture and the life of faith and just ranged over a number of topics. And the thing about this guy that is so striking to me now is that he was experiencing homelessness. He was a military vet who was trying to get a master's degree through National University, but he was living on the streets. Everything he owned, he was pulling around in this black suitcase on wheels and he had time to kill and we just sat and talked and it he was so grounded more grounded than anyone i talked to at that conference <laughs> and it just struck me how money and titles and careers are not where our worth and dignity lie he was just fully uh fully himself and and fully comfortable in his own skin. Mm -hmm. um, I I got on the plane the next day after I spoke in chapel to fly back to Alberta and I was sitting next to a man who had it all. He was the owner of a multi-million dollar company. He had tens of thousands of acres of farmland in Alberta. He ran companies that build, built things in in really creatively sustainable ways. Uh, he had some property in San Francisco and he would, he was the kind of business owner who was so concerned about sustainability that he would fly to the forest where they were cutting down the trees to make sure they were doing it in responsible ways. And he would fly to Europe to look at the machinery himself and, and make decisions. And this man was absolutely broken and absolutely empty he was in the middle of uh, his third marriage was in the middle of falling apart his children wouldn't speak with him he was on an unsuccessful quest to figure out why he existed and what his what he was here for and trying to find meaning in life and i just thought what a contrast uh, the between the the man on the streets of San Diego experiencing homelessness and this man, this Canadian man who had it all financially and business wise, but felt such emptiness and didn't know who he was. He was looking. He was looking for himself. And I I wanted to introduce the two of them and say, hey, there's a guy in San Diego on the streets you need to go talk to because he has found the Lord and he has found himself in the process. Wow. When we know. When we know the Lord, he tells us who we are in in a way that we can be fully comfortable in our own skin. So I I I can't remember what chapter that story was in originally, but it illustrated to me just how how essential it is for us to know ourselves as we are known by God and that there's no ultimate sense of meaning and purpose outside of knowing God. And knowing uh, why he made us. Mm, yeah, that, that actually brings to mind a quote that uh, you have in the book that I wrote down. And I love how you say it. Um, Scripture invites us to gaze at Christ to learn how to be ourselves, mm. which is just mm. so beautiful. Mm. Mm. You yeah. know, uh, one, of, one of the ideas um, that is, uh, I guess, contrasted with, with our responsibilities of being followers of Jesus is you, you talk uh, briefly about the idea of empire and kind of contrast that because uh, mm. again that's just that's not something that is talked about very much <laughs> uh, but can you can you kind of tease out that idea of empire and what you mean by that and how that plays out yes i think probably i talk about that in the chapter where i talk about the tower of babel mm -hmm. um, and maybe i tease it out in other places as well but um empire to me represents a uh, a failure to understand God's plan for humanity from the beginning, that we're to rule creation together in ways that provide for flourishing. Empire is a kind of greedy race to the top where we have to continue to amass more land because we need more resources to prop up the kind of world we've built where there's a, a a whole layer of people who are not working uh, with their hands and who then require the labor of others to do work for them. Um, and, and so empire is built on the back of exploitation at some level. 
and in, and it's a failure of collaboration and a failure, I think, to see every human being as the image of God worthy of being treated with dignity. Um, I heard a story years ago, it's not in the book, but a story of a medical, uh, it was like a people were studying to be doctors, so they had some medical exam, and the professor asked a question on the exam, and the question was, what's the name of the man who empties the trash in this building? And some of the students were like, dude, I studied really hard for this exam. I don't know the name of the guy. That this That's not fair. That's not a real question, is it? And the response was, that's absolutely a real question. Because in your line of work as doctors, you are going to be interfacing with a whole lot of other people who make you successful because they do their jobs. And you need to begin to see them as full-fledged human beings who are part of your team. And if you don't, you will never be a good doctor. And I, I just think that's striking. Um, the, the call to see every human, not just the ones who can give us something or who can pat us on the back, but to see everyone with equal dignity and worth and to see ourselves as collaborators in uh, in the in the work of doing what humans are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I got two other questions I want to ask yet, but before that, I always love just giving people the opportunity to just talk about anything that's on your mind that we haven't covered yet from the book. Mm -hmm. So, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure that we talk about? I one of the one of the things that I hope people will find really helpful is um, I have a section on the Old Testament wisdom literature, which might feel a little random because it's not, it never uses the phrase image of God, but it's exploring these broader questions about what it means to be human. So I talk about suffering, the, the quest for meaning, um, sexuality, and um, human embodiment, and wisdom, development of wisdom. So th the section on Ecclesiastes is one of my favorites, because Ecclesiastes is not a book that comes naturally to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody who's very driven. I work a lot of hours, and I love my work. And I'm, I'm very motivated by earning points. <laughs> so I've got this little step counter on my wrist, and I get points for yeah. taking steps. <laughs> Anyway, the book of Ecclesiastes issues a really sober warning to people like me saying, don't always be uh, driven to get what you don't have yet, but actually enjoy the journey and uh, and stop and smell the roses. If, if we're constantly working for what we don't have yet, we'll constantly be dissatisfied and Ecclesiastes is trying to to help us to slow down and savor what God gives us day by day. And honestly, being on podcasts is one way that I do that. Uh, instead of just pressing on to do the next thing, it's a way of like lingering with these ideas and savoring them with others and, um, you know, spending, spending time with people talking about things that matter. Um, yeah. I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier in our conversation of Jesus embody, like embodying humanity. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what's part of Jesus's humanity that maybe most resonated with you as you were exploring this topic. Hmm. I, it was fun to look through the gospels with that lens on and just ask, how is he showing us how to be human? Mm -hmm. Because we think a lot about, Jesus divine status and a lot about um, what he does in an ultimate sense to save our save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. Um, but it was really beautiful to just slow down and see, look at the ways that Jesus interacts, interacts with human culture and human institutions even. So um, there's a section in the book on the, the water to wine miracle in John mm -hmm. four. And it's, I think it really came to life for me because, because Jesus is actually upholding a, it, there's no like, there's no great cosmic thing at stake with this wedding. You know, what's actually lost if they run out of wine. And yeah. yet Jesus takes time to enter into human celebration, the celebration of marriage 
and he dignifies human institutions, human culture by by participating. And he does it in the most beautiful way. And I I I want to thank um, Amy Peeler for this insight because she talks about this in her book, Women and the Gender of God. And I had never noticed it before. But the way that Jesus solves the problem of of having run out of wine at the wedding without embarrassing the host. So Jesus is teaching us how to be a good guest mm-hmm. at a wedding, to how to make the host look good. Um, that's just really cool. Yeah. I had oh, never yeah. seen that before. And there's yeah. so many of these little nuggets throughout the gospels that I got to talk about that were really fun. Yeah. Uh, the the last thing that I would love uh, your thoughts on, I know that we touched on briefly, I would just love to hear um, maybe some of your thoughts or reflections on the new creation and just some of the things that stood out to you from that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so far, I haven't gotten any hate mail about the rapture section. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because... Uh. Um, I know that for a lot of people, the rapture is a cherished doctrine yeah. that is just taken for granted that this is this is what's going to happen. We're going to just be going about our business and all of a sudden zoop, we'll be whisked up into the air and we'll never come back. And so I have a section where I try to gently dismantle that idea through a close reading of biblical texts. And this is a a shout out to my discipleship pastor, James Michael Smith, who first taught me this. Even when I was in seminary, I already had a I already had a Bible degree and I was on working on my second when he walked me through these passages. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize I was reading those improperly. But the, the basic idea is that when Jesus returns, we will get caught up to meet him in the air, but the word that's used to describe that is the word used to describe what uh, what a welcoming party does for a returning dignitary. So you go out of the city to roll out the red carpet and welcome them in, and then you come into the city together. Mm-hmm. And so the idea seems to be in First Thessalonians 4 that we will be caught up to meet Jesus and usher him in to his rightful place as king over this earth. And I just think that's so beautiful. Um, It also corrects some of the, I think, really, uh, it's now it's painful to me now, but um, really well-meaning theology that's just not based in scripture. So I tell the story about a mission trip I went on in high school where everybody was buying this t-shirt that had a song on the back that's or poem that said this world is not my home although it seems to be my home is with my God and the place he's made for me he's coming back real soon the signs are very clear so when the trumpet sounds I'll be out of here this idea that like this isn't it we're going somewhere better and if we if we come to faith and grow in our faith, believing that, believing that we're going to be whisked away from this place, that this isn't really where we belong, then it changes our relationship with creation and with each other. And I, I'm hoping that I can help people recapture a sense of um, respect and awe for the, the beauty of the world God made and that it's okay to love it. I think there are Christians out there who love nature yeah. And are a little worried that that's like unspiritual, <laughs> and so I want to help. I want to help you be able to embrace yeah. that 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 love of nature is God given, and your impulse about the importance of recycling and sustainable use of resources is actually an exercise of your human vocation as stewards of creation. So you can lean into that without leaning away from your faith. It's part of how God wired us. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that all culminate when Christ returns and reigns as king. And we'll be here in our bodies to enjoy it. Yeah. Well, Carmen, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you, get uh, being God's image and just follow the, just the rest of your work as you, as it's continuing to come out in previous work and all that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to get the book and keep up with you? Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, wherever you want to order it, um, you should be able to find it or directly from InterVarsity Press. Um, if you're curious, authors do make more money when you buy directly from the 
the publisher. So um, it doesn't, it's not going to make or break it either way for me, Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it is a, nice to order from the publisher. Um, yeah. And then I have a YouTube channel that you can come check it out. Uh, I release a video every Tuesday called Torah Tuesday. And I'm just basically sharing insights that I am coming across as I work through the book of Exodus, uh, working on my commentary. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook trying to stay out of trouble and you can come follow me there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for the great conversation and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thanks, Caleb, for having me and for your great questions. This has been fun. So as I was thinking back on this conversation, there's a couple of things that it made me think about. One of just kind of what we were talking about, what Carmen and I were talking about in, in that there's, there's, there are definitely things that happen in the world that keep us from engaging or keep us from learning about certain conversations and, and just realizing that I think that that's a little bit different from from everybody but in some sense sometimes it's our own personal bias some things it's uh systems or structures that are set up to keep us from learning about what's actually happening or to distract us from that and i think just realizing that it is very important for us to kind of do our own homework i don't think it's important for us to do our own investigation our own learning into things and to not take things for not take things for granted as well, or not just take them because, you know, this person said something or this person told us something, or it's the way that it's always been done. It's the way that it's always been told and doing the homework for ourselves and learning how, how to go about doing that as well. And, and, you know, in this case, it's the conversation about creation, but it can be about so many different things of even what we were talking about with um with Carmen doing her own work in in the rapture or even even about healing as well of just learning about what what was actually meant what was what was actually written or what was actually said in that and the other thing that it made me think about was uh the humanity of Jesus and one of the things that has really stood out to me and uh if it if it's not out already it'll it'll be out soon for uh, for one of the things that I, I recommend on on my Substack is the TV series or the TV series The Chosen, and one of the things that I really appreciate about that is just seeing seeing more of Jesus's humanity, and of course there's you know there it is it is a little bit fictitious in that we don't know all of the details of what happened day to day, but I think it does help us it helps us. Uh, just engage in our imagination of what things could have looked like, what things might have looked like in that as well. And we see a great picture of, of the humanity of Jesus in that. And we can just learn so many things from him, as Carmen mentioned about being being a guest or how to handle our, our emotions and just so many other things as well. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. If you enjoyed this, if you enjoy conversations like these, if you enjoy learning, please subscribe to my Substack, where I just give bunches of recommendations from podcasts to, um, to movies, to books, to YouTube videos, to literally everything that is just engaging my curiosity as well. I just want to share some of the best things that I'm currently enjoying and you might enjoy them too because i know that it's it's it goes back to what carmen and i carmen and i were talking about that that just finding things to learn from finding things that you can trust can be difficult and i want to help save you the time and to help save uh some of the effort in that as well but again as as i was just talking about before take it take it for your own merit you know or take it take it on your own merit investigate do the work yourself so i think i i think that's enough of me for today so i do want to say thank you to uh sam massey for creating the music for this podcast thank you again to carmen for being on the podcast as well and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode my name is caleb mason and until next time keep learning and keep growing